Today we're talking about what the media did to us, all of us, on this special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to The Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 335 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented An unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Okay, the theme of today's show is what the media did to us, all of us. We have a lot to talk about today. You know, we have been trained to not trust the mainstream media. We have been trained not to trust liberal reporters. Who trained us? They trained us. It used to not be that way. I'm old enough to remember Walter Cronkite on CBS Evening News, and everybody thought he was telling the truth until we found out years later that he wasn't always telling the truth. But... There was just this thing where a lot of families watched the evening news with dinner or after dinner. You had Walter Cronkite on CBS. You had uh, Huntley and Brinkley on NBC. Uh, eventually, you had uh, Frank Reynolds on ABC. And nobody gave it, gave it a second thought. But that has really changed the last few years, hasn't it? Now, Glenn Greenwald is a liberal reporter, but I see him on a regular basis on Tucker Carlson's show over on Fox because he doesn't shy away from reporting the seamy underside of mainstream media and liberal politics. I probably disagree with him on most issues, and yet, well, let me just tell you what he's saying out there on Twitter. He says, the four-part series just published by the Columbia Journalism Review, written by Pulitzer Prize-winning Jeff Gerth, that's G-E-R-T-H, for decades, a reporter of the New York Times, is absolutely devastating on how casually, frequently, recklessly, and eagerly the press lied on Russiagate. Okay, you wouldn't expect to hear a liberal mainstream, mainstream media reporter talking like this, and yet he is. Glenn Greenwald continues, I highlighted a few parts last night from this series. The only real attempt by corporate media, apart from a few columns from Eric Wemple, he's a media critic over the Washington Post, 
to grapple with their serial Russiagate misconduct and lying. They will ignore this article, even though it's from the Columbia Journalism Review and Jeff and, and written by Jeff Girth. So I think it's my duty to share this with you, not just a couple of highlighted portions from Glenn Greenwald. And we're going to try to get to the latest Twitter files and the Google files that should be out. Okay, we're going to start with the note by Jeff Girth at the end of this Columbia Journalism Review article, which is entitled The Press Versus the President, Part 1. The note at the end, Jeff Girth says, in 2015-2016, I was a senior reporter at ProPublica. Again, a left-leaning website, no question about it. He said, there I reported on Hillary, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, and Russian oligarchs, among other subjects. He says, I helped ProPublica decide whether to collaborate with a book that was critical of the Clintons' involvement with Russia. The arrangement didn't happen. Another of the projects I worked on, also involving Hillary Clinton, was published in the Washington Post in 2016, where I shared a byline. He says, some of my other Clinton-related work was used in 2016 articles appearing in the New York Times, my employer, between 1976 and 2005, but without my byline. Initially, the New York Times sought my assistance on a story about Hillary's handling of Bill Clinton's infidelity. Subsequently, I approached the paper on my own about the Clinton Family Foundation. In both cases, I interacted with reporters and editors, but was not involved in the writing or editing of the stories that used my reporting. During the second interaction, I expressed disappointment to one of the New York Times reporters about the final result. I left ProPublica in December 2016. That month, I was approached by one of the co-founders of Fusion GPS. Is that a familiar-sounding name? Who sounded me out about joining a Trump-related project the firm Fusion GPS was contemplating. The discussion did not lead to any collaboration. I had previously interacted with Fusion GPS related to my reporting on Russian oligarchs. In the 2017-2018 academic year, I was a non-resident fellow at the investigative reporting program affiliated with the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. There... One of my projects involved looking into the dossier as part of preliminary research for a 2020 film the investigative reporting program helped produce for HBO on Russian meddling. I was not on the film's credits. At Columbia Journalism Review, these stories have been edited by Kyle Pope, its editor and publisher. Kyle's wife, Kate Kelly, is a reporter for the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. Columbia, Journal, Columbia Journalism Review's former board chair was Steve Adler, 
formerly the editor-in-chief of Reuters. Its current board chair is Rebecca Blumenstein, a former deputy managing editor of the New York Times who recently became president of editorial for NBC News. All right. So let's get into this article by Jeff Gerth at the Columbia Journalism Review, of all places, entitled The Press versus the President, Part 1. And this dropped on January 30th, 2023. Introduction. Quote, I realized early on I had two jobs, unquote. And the reporter says the end of the long inquiry into whether Donald Trump was colluding with Russia came in July 2019 when Robert Mueller III, the special counsel, took seven sometimes painful hours to essentially say no. Then he quotes Dean Baquette, then the executive editor of the New York Times, who began his quote with an obscenity that I could not share. But it's kind of like an exclamation, like he can't believe it. Bob Mueller is not going to do it. Which described the moment the New York Times readers realized Mueller was not going to pursue Trump's ouster. Dean Baquette, then executive editor of the New York Times, speaking to his colleagues in a town hall meeting soon after the testimony concluded, acknowledged the Times had been caught a little tiny bit flat-footed by the outcome of Mueller's investigation. That would prove to be more than an understatement. But neither Dean Baquette nor his successor nor any of the New York Times reporters would offer anything like a post-mortem of the paper's Trump-Russia saga, unlike the examination the New York Times did of its coverage before the Iraq War. In fact, Dean Baquette added, quote, I think we covered that story better than anyone else, unquote, and had the prizes to prove it, according to a tape of the event published by Slate.com. In a statement to Columbia Journalism Review, the New York Times continued to stand by its reporting noting not only the prizes it had won, but substantiation of the paper's reporting by various investigations. The statement said, The New York Times thoroughly pursued credible claims, fact-checked, edited, and ultimately produced groundbreaking journalism that has proven true time and again. But... Outside of the New York Times' own bubble, the damage to the credibility of the Times and its peers persists three years on and is likely to take on new energy as the nation faces yet another election season animated by antagonism toward the press. At its root was an undeclared war between an entrenched media and a new kind of disruptive presidency with its own hyperbolic version of the truth. The Washington Post has tracked thousands of Trump's false or misleading statements. At times, Trump seemed almost to be toying with the press, offering spontaneous answers to questions about Russia that seemed to point to darker narratives. When those storylines were authoritatively undercut 
the follow-ups were downplayed or ignored. Trump and his acolytes in the conservative media fueled the ensuing political storm, but the hottest flashpoints emerged from the work of mainstream journalism. Again, this is, this is just flabbergasting to me that a liberal reporter in a very liberal journal, the Columbia Journalism Review, is saying, look, uh, Trump played fast and loose with the truth, but, but the main problem here was the work of mainstream journalism. They, they don't do this. You're not going to see this kind of postmortem on CNN. You're not going to see this kind of postmortem on MSNBC. You're not going to see this kind of postmortem in the pages of the New York Times. They don't do this. And yet, here it is. Here it is. And it's my duty to share it with you because I doubt anybody else is. You know? I haven't even seen Tucker talk about this. Now, I missed his Tuesday night show. Maybe he did. I doubt seriously that uh, talk radio is talking about this. Anyway, let me get back to it. Trump and his acolytes in the conservative media fueled the ensuing political storm, but the hottest flashpoints emerged from the work of mainstream journalism. The two most inflammatory and enduring slogans commandeered by Trump in this conflict were fake news and the news media as the enemy of the American people. They both grew out of stories in the first weeks of 2017 about Trump and Russia that wound up being significantly flawed or based on uncorroborated or debunked information according to FBI documents that later became public. Both relied on anonymous sources. Before the 2016 election, most Americans trusted the traditional media, and the trend was positive according to the Edelman Trust Barometer. The phrase fake news was limited to a few reporters and a newly organized social media watchdog. The idea that the media were enemies of the American people was voiced only once, just before the election, on an obscure podcast, and not by Trump, according to a Nexus search. Today, the U.S. media has the lowest credibility, 26% among 46 nations, according to a 2022 study by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. In 2021, 83% of Americans saw the concept of fake news as a problem. And 56%, mostly Republicans and independents, agreed that the media were truly the enemy of the American people, according to Rasmussen reports. Trump, years later, can't stop looking back. In two interviews with Columbia Journalism Review, Donald Trump made it clear he remains furious over what he calls the witch hunt or hoax and remains obsessed with Robert Mueller. His staff has compiled a short video made made up of what he sees as Mueller's worst moments from his appearance before Congress And he played it for me when I first went to interview him just after Labor Day in 2021 at his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. During my interview with Trump, he appeared tired as he sat behind his desk. He wore golf attire and a signature red MAGA hat, having just finished 18 holes. 
but his energy and level of engagement kicked in when it came to questions about perceived enemies, mainly Mueller and the media. He made clear that in the early weeks of 2017, after initially hoping to get along with the press, he found himself inundated by a wave of Russia-related stories. He then realized that surviving, if not combating, the media was an integral part of his job. You know, this sounds like this sounds like Rush Limbaugh. I'm telling you. I remember Rush saying that he was stunned that Donald Trump, a good friend of his that he played golf with, was naive enough to think that after the 2016 election and the 2017 inauguration that he'd be able to join hands with the other side and the media would realize, well, we're all all Americans here. We don't actually have enemies. And Rush tried to warn him, uh, sorry, I don't think it's going to work out, out that way. That's this is This is amazing. Jeff Gerth continues, Quoting Donald Trump from the interview, Trump said, I realized early on I had two jobs. The first was to run the country, and the second was survival. I had to survive. The stories were unbelievably fake. Girth says what follows is the story of Trump, Russia, and the press. Trump's attacks against media outlets and individual reporters are a well-known theme of his campaigns. But news outlets and watchdogs have not been as forthright in examining their own Trump-Russia coverage, which includes serious flaws. Bob Woodward of the Washington Post told me that news coverage of the Russia inquiry wasn't handled well and that he thought viewers and readers had been cheated. He urged newsrooms to, quote, Walk down the painful road of introspection, unquote. Jeff Gerth says, over the past two years, I put questions to and received answers from Trump as well as his enemies. The latter include Christopher Steele, the author of the so-called dossier, financed by Hillary Clinton's campaign that claimed Trump was in the service of the Kremlin, and Peter Strzok, the FBI official who opened and led the inquiry into possible collusion between Russia and Trump's campaign before he was fired from the FBI. I also sought interviews, often unsuccessfully, with scores of journalists, print, broadcast, and online, hoping they would cooperate with the same scrutiny they applied to Trump. And I poured through countless official documents, court records, books, and articles, a daunting task Given that over Mueller's tenure, there were more than half a million news stories concerning Trump and Russia or Mueller. On the eve of a new era of intense political coverage, this is a look back at what the press got right and what it got wrong about the man who once again wants to be president. So far, few news organizations have reckoned seriously with what transpired between the press and the presidency during this period. That failure will almost certainly shape the coverage of what lies ahead. Again, this is just remarkable. 
And we're going to get to chapter one, entitled A Narrative Takes Hold, from longtime mainstream media reporter for the New York Times, Jeff Gerth, in the Columbia Journalism Review, in just a few moments. I'm just, I'm amazed. Hey, if you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase your vehicle online. If you have any questions, one of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You will be glad you did. As you probably know by now, our friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of your life. Mike didn't stop by simply creating my pillow, the best pillow ever. Mike also created the best bed sheets ever. They look great, they feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for my busy schedule. My wife and I just love sleeping on our Giza Dreams bed sheets. Now, Mike is offering the best deal on his Giza Dreams sheets. You can get a set of Giza sheets for as low as $29.98. The first night you sleep on these sheets, You'll never want to sleep on anything else. Mike is making a special offer for my listeners. You can get a set of Giza sheets for as low as $29.98 just by using promo code DWS. And right now, a set of pillowcases for only $9.98. In this economy, instead of buying a new bed, rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. MyPillow also has blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles like plush, waffle, or gossamer for as, for as low as twenty nine ninety eight, Get huge discounts on duvets, quilts, down comforters, and so much more. Now use that promo code DWS, and you'll get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding, including MyPillow Giza Dreams sheets for just twenty nine ninety eight. Now I'm wearing my new My Slippers moccasins even as we speak. I had no idea slippers could feel this good. I also had no idea I could go out in a 15-degree cold in these things with no socks and my feet wouldn't get cold. That just amazed me. Right now, save up to $90 on my slippers, slip-ons, and moccasins marked down to just $49.98 by using promo code DWS. Not only that, Mike is having the biggest closeout sale ever on his sandals and slides for as low as $19.98. What makes my slippers different is Mike's exclusive four-layer design that you're not going to find in any other slippers. My slippers' patented layers make them ultra-comfortable, extremely durable, and they help reduce stress on your feet. You can wear them anytime, 
anywhere. Mike's other passion is to support American entrepreneurs and bring manufacturing back to the good old USA. For years, people approached Mike Lindell with great products, but it had no way of marketing them. MyStore.com was created to give those people a voice and a platform to bring you their amazing products made right here in the USA. MyStore.com has all kinds of great deals on automotive products, bath and beauty, books and video, clothing, decor items, food and drink, garden and patio, health, home improvement, household essentials, kitchen and dining, personal care, sports and outdoors, toys and games, and so much more. Just use promo code DWS to get great deals at MyPillow.com or MyStore.com. But remember, DWS does not stand for washed-up Democrat politician Debbie Wasserman Schultz. No, 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 no. It stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com and MyStore.com. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. All right. Let's take a look at Chapter 1 of this amazing article of Part 1. It's a four-parter in the Columbia Journalism Review entitled The Press Versus the President. Chapter 1 is entitled A Narrative Takes Hold. And Jeff Girth is an amazing reporter. By the way, he's the guy that broke the Whitewater story way back in the day. Just so you know. He says, Trump entered the presidential race on June 16, 2015, In his campaign speech, he offered a rambling analysis of global affairs that briefly touched on Russia and Vladimir Putin, noting all our problems with Russia. That's a quote, all our problems with Russia. And the need to modernize America's outdated nuclear arsenal to better deter the Russian leader. The media covered his inflammatory comments about Mexico and China and ignored his inflammatory comments about Russia. The next day, Trump gave a long interview to Sean Hannity, the Fox News Channel television host and Trump supporter and friend who would go on to become an informal advisor to the president. In the interview, Trump indicated he thought he could have good relations with Russia. Asked if he had any previous contact with Putin, Trump answered yes. When pressed by Hannity to elaborate, Trump replied, I don't want to say. Trump, as he acknowledged at a debate in October 2016, didn't actually know Putin. Three days before Trump's presidential announcement, Hillary Clinton entered the race. And it was she, not Trump, who began her campaign facing scrutiny over ties with Russia. Weeks earlier, the New York Times had collaborated with the conservative author of a best-selling book to explore various Clinton-Russia links, including a lucrative speech in Moscow by Bill Clinton, Russia-related donations to the Clinton Family Foundation, and Russia-friendly initiatives by the Obama administration while Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. The New York Times itself said it had an exclusive agreement with the author to pursue the storylines found in the book through its own reporting. An internal Clinton campaign poll 
shared within the campaign the day of Trump's announcement, showed that the Russia entanglements exposed in the book and the New York Times were the most worrisome Clinton negative message, according to campaign records. Robert Trout, Clinton's campaign lawyer, declined to comment on the record after an exchange of emails. By 2016, as Trump's political visibility grew and he voiced admiration for Russia's strong leader, Hillary Clinton and her campaign would secretly sponsor and publicly promote an unsubstantiated conspiracy theory that there was a secret alliance between Trump and Russia. The media would eventually play a role in all that, but at the outset, reporters viewed Trump and his candidacy as a sideshow. Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, a longtime Trump chronicler, burst into a boisterous laugh when a fellow panelist on a television news program suggested Trump might succeed at the polls on the first Tuesday of November. Fairly quickly, Trump started to gain traction with voters and it was clear his candidacy was no longer a joke. His popularity drew large television audiences and a large number of online clicks, boosting media organizations' revenues while generating free publicity for the candidate. The relationship would remain symbiotic throughout the Trump era. As Trump began to nail down the GOP nomination in 2016, he spoke critically about NATO. He focused mostly on America's disproportionate share of the financial burden, though he occasionally called the alliance obsolete in an era of counterterrorism and voiced his hope to, quote, get along, unquote, with Putin, prompting some concerns inside the national security world. Those concerns would be supercharged by a small group of former journalists turned private investigators who operated out of a small office near DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., under the name Fusion GPS. In late May 2016, Glenn Simpson, a former Wall Street Journal reporter and co-founder of Fusion GPS, flew to London to meet Christopher Steele, a former official within MI6, the British spy agency. Steele had his own investigative firm called Orbis Business Intelligence. By then, Fusion had assembled records on Trump's business dealings and associates, some with Russia ties from a previous, now terminated, engagement. The client for the old job was the Washington Free Beacon, a conservative online publication backed in part by Paul Singer, a hedge fund billionaire and a Republican Trump critic. Weeks before the trip to London, Fusion GPS signed a new research contract with the law firm representing the Democrat National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign. Simpson not only had a new client, but Fusion GPS's mission had changed from collection of public records to human intelligence gathering related to Russia. Over lasagna at an Italian restaurant at Heathrow Airport in London, Simpson told Steele about the project, indicating only that his client was a law firm, according to a book co-authored by Simpson. The other author of the 2019 book, Crime in Progress, was Peter Fritsch, also a former Wall Street Journal reporter and Fusion GPS's other co-founder. Soon after the London meeting, 
Christopher Steele agreed to probe Trump's activities in Russia. Simpson and I exchanged emails over the course of several months, but he ultimately declined to respond to my last message, which had included extensive background and questions about Fusion GPS's actions. As that work was underway, in June 2016, the Russia cloud over the election darkened. First, the Washington Post broke the story that the Democrat National Committee had been hacked, a breach the party's cyber experts attributed in the story to Russia. Ellen Nakashima, reporter for the Washington Post, received off-the-record guidance from FBI cyber experts just prior to publication, according to FBI documents made public in 2022. Soon, a purported Romanian hacker who went by Guccifer 2.0 published DNC data, starting with the party's negative research on Trump, followed by the DNC dossier on its own candidate, Hillary Clinton. The next week, the Washington Post weighed in with a long piece headlined Inside Trump's Financial Ties to Russia and His Unusual Flattery of Vladimir Putin. It began with Trump's trip to Moscow in 2013 for his Miss Universe pageant, quickly summarized Trump's desire for a new partnership with Russia, coupled with a possible overhaul of NATO, and delved into a collection of Trump advisors with financial ties to Russia. The piece covered the dependence of Trump's global real estate empire on wealthy Russians, as well as the multiple times Trump himself had tried and failed to do a real estate deal in Moscow. The lead author of the story, Tom Hamburger, was a former Wall Street Journal reporter. That sounds familiar. Who had worked with Glenn Simpson. The two were friends, according to Simpson's book. By 2022, emails between the two from the summer of 2016 surfaced in court records showing their frequent interactions on Trump-related matters. Hamburger, who recently retired from the Washington Post, declined to comment. The Post also declined to comment on, on Hamburger's ties to Fusion GPS. By July, Trump was poised to become the GOP nominee at the party's convention in Cleveland. On July 18th, the first day of the gathering, Josh Rogan, an opinion columnist for the Washington Post, wrote a piece about the party's platform position on Ukraine under the headline, Trump campaign guts GOP's anti-Russian stance on Ukraine. The story would turn out to be an overreach. Subsequent investigations found that the original draft of the platform was actually strengthened by adding language on tightening sanctions on Russia for Ukraine-related actions, if warranted, and called for additional assistance for Ukraine. What was rejected was a proposal to supply arms to Ukraine, something the Obama administration hadn't done either. Josh Rogan's piece, nevertheless, caught the attention of other journalists. Within a few days, Paul Krugman, in his column in the New York Times, called Trump the Siberian candidate, citing the, quote, watering down, unquote, of the platform. 
Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor of The Atlantic, labeled Trump as a, quote, de facto agent, unquote, of Putin. He cited the Rogan report and a recent interview Trump had given to the New York Times where he emphasized the importance of NATO members paying their bills and didn't answer a question on whether nations in arrears could count on American support if Russia attacked them. But other journalists saw the Rogan piece differently, introducing a level of skepticism that most of the press would ignore. Masha Gessen, a Russian-American journalist and harsh critic of Vladimir Putin, writing in the New York Review of Books that month, said labeling Trump a Putin agent was deeply flawed. Gessen, in articles then and a few months later, said the accounts of the platform revisions were slightly misleading because sanctions, something the Russians had hoped to see gone, remained, while the proposal for lethal aid to Ukraine was at the time a step too far for most experts and the Obama administration itself. Matt Taibbi, who spent time as a journalist in Russia, also grew uneasy about the Trump-Russia coverage. Eventually, he would compare the media's performance to its failures during the run-up to the Iraq War. He said in an interview, it was a career-changing moment for me. He said the more neutral approach to reporting went completely out the window once Trump got elected, saying anything publicly about the story that did not align with the narrative, the repercussions were huge for any of us that did not go there. That is crazy. That's the quote from Matt Taibbi. Taibbi, as well as Glenn Greenwald, then at The Intercept, and again, I digress here, a very left-leaning organization, and Aaron Mate, then at The Nation, also a very left-leaning organization, left their publications and continue to be widely followed, though they are now independent journalists. All were publicly critical of the press's Trump-Russia narrative. Taibbi, over the last month, surged back into the spotlight after Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, gave him access to the tech platform's files. Anyway, at the end of July 2016, the DNC held its nominating convention in Philadelphia. In attendance were legions of journalists as well as Glenn Simpson and Fritch. On the eve of the events, the hacked emails from the DNC were dumped angering supporters of Bernie Sanders who saw confirmation in the messages of their fears that the committee, the DNC, had favored Hillary all along. The disclosures, while not helpful to Hillary Clinton, energized the promotion of the Russian narrative to the media by her aides and fusion investigators. On July 24th, Robbie Mook, Hillary's campaign manager, told CNN and ABC that Trump himself had changed the platform to become more pro-Russian and that the hack and dump, quote, was done by the Russians for the purpose of helping Donald Trump, unquote. He said that was according to unnamed experts. Still, the campaign's efforts did not succeed 
campaign spokeswoman Jennifer Palmieri would write in the Washington Post the next year. So on July 26, 2016, the campaign allegedly upped the ante. Behind the scenes, Hillary Clinton was said to have approved a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by Russian security services. Now, that is according to notes declassified in 2020 of a briefing CIA director, John Brennan, gave President Obama a few days later. Trump, unaware of any plan to tie him to the Kremlin, pumped life into the sputtering Russian narrative. Asked about the DNC hacks by reporters at his Trump National Doral Miami Golf Resort on July 27, 2016, he said, quoting now, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing, unquote. The quip was picked up everywhere. Clinton national security aide Jake Sullivan quickly seized on the remarks, calling them a national security issue. The comment became a major exhibit over the next several years for those who believed Trump had an untoward relationship with Russia. Hillary Clinton's own Russia baggage, meantime, began to fade into the background. Hope Hicks, Trump's press aide, later testified to Congress that she told Trump some in the media were taking his statement quite literally, but that she believed it was a joke. I asked Trump what he meant. He said in an interview, if you look at the whole tape, it's obvious that it was being said sarcastically, a point he made at the time. I reviewed the tape after several minutes of repeated questions about Russia. Trump's facial demeanor evolved to what seemed like his TV entertainer mode. That's when, in response to a final Russia question, he said the widely quoted words. Then, appearing to be playful, he said the leakers, quote, will probably be rewarded mightily by the press, unquote, if they found Clinton's long-lost emails because they contained, quote, some beauties, unquote. Trump, after talking with Hope Hicks that day in Florida, sought to control the damage by tweeting that whoever had Clinton's deleted emails, quote, should share them with the FBI, unquote. That didn't mute the response. Jake Sullivan immediately jumped in, saying the remarks at Doral encouraged espionage. On another track, Fusion GPS became involved in an effort to promote another unproven conspiracy theory that Trump's company was involved in back-channel communications with a Russian bank. Hillary Clinton personally supported pitching a reporter to explore the story as the campaign was not totally confident of its accuracy, according to 2022 court testimony by Robbie Mook. The back-channel theory was pushed to the media and the FBI at the same time, though the campaign did not direct and was not aware of all the various efforts. Well, I think Hillary was, obviously, right? Anyway, hundreds of emails were exchanged between Fusion GPS employees and reporters for such outlets as ABC, The Wall Street Journal, Yahoo, The Washington Post, Slate.com, Reuters, and The New York Times during the last months of the campaign. They involved sharing of 
quote-unquote raw Trump-related information and hints to contact government and campaign officials to bolster the information's credibility, according to a federal prosecutor's court filings in 2022. The lawyer who hired Fusion GPS, Mark Elias, testified in 2022 that he would brief Jake Sullivan and other Clinton campaign officials about Fusion GPS's findings, having been updated himself through regular meetings with Simpson and Fritch. With Elias as the intermediary, the Fusion GPS founders could write in 2019 that, quote, no one in the company has ever met or spoken to Hillary Clinton. No, of course, they, they didn't have to. They had this, you know, the intermediaries. More of Chapter 1 from this remarkable article at the Columbia Journalism Review by Jeff Gerth, the press versus the president is coming up. Look, I, I mentioned recently how AT&T, they've got um, this thing called DirecTV, this uh, satellite deal a lot of people use to watch cable TV channels. Recently, got rid of Newsmax. Last year, they got rid of One American News. Now they got rid of Newsmax. Y'all, I, I don't know how to explain it to you, but I don't think that AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile are on our side. They give money to left-wing causes. And I'm hearing from people who are like, hey, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not going to give them any more of my money. They think they can just cancel One American News and Newsmax. What's next, Fox News? Anyway, if you're going to switch your cell carrier because you're tired of supporting the left, let me give you a suggestion. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes that you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. And by the way, that's a guarantee. That coverage is a guarantee. They'll, they'll switch towers for you if, if you if you need to. I haven't had any problem with the coverage myself, but I'm just saying. Also, let's talk about saving money. I saved a lot of money when I switched over from the liberal carrier, the big carrier I had been using, to Patriot Mobile. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes as well as for customers who are multi-line users. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given rights to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment, religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. 
Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. And make sure you use promo code DOC, D-O-C, for free activation. Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier, and I am honored to be associated with them. I'm also honored to be associated with the folks who are attacking America's best-kept health care problems with America's best-kept health care secret. I'm trying to get the word out. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Are you having problems with sinuses, allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? Well, the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you even if you don't live in Arkansas. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. Now, I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away, and it's never come back. I had severe migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the migraines went away, and they've never come back. The first time my wife got her atlas adjusted, we were walking out of the office to the car, and she said, Doc, this is crazy. I said, what? She said, well, the big toe on my left foot has felt numb and tingly for years. And now it feels normal. That afternoon, she texted me while I was doing my radio talk show. And she said, hey, guess what? I don't have my regular daily backache. Great. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. A few days later, she said, you know what, Doc? I haven't had a headache since I got my atlas adjusted. And I said, well, how often are you used to having headaches? She said, oh, every day. I'm telling you, these people might be able to help you. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped me. They've helped my wife. They've helped so many people we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation, 501-279-2009. Now, if you're outside central Arkansas and you want to find a doctor who does what these folks do, go to the website, turnmypoweron.com, click on the button that says, find a doctor near you. I sure hope you can. Look, I've been talking about how the world's going crazy with supply chain issues record-setting inflation, sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations that stand against everything we believe in. We all know how the big-box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic, while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people were forced to close. The wealthiest people on earth became better off, while mom-and-pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? 
What can we do about it? How can our voices be heard? Well, we can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally, we can shop Factory Direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Switch to America.com is helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America.com was created, with regular folks like you and me in mind. One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. A lot of Patriot influencers have come on board. I'm inviting you to join with fellow Patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big, woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We are done with a woke, globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned Made in America. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. And now an even more exciting addition is fresh American-raised beef. Raised in the mountains of Montana, near the Yellowstone, this beef is known as never ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. SwitchToAmerica.com is dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to SwitchToAmerica.com. When it asks how you heard about us, click on my name, Doc Washburn, plug in your info, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. SwitchToAmerica.com. All right, so we are looking at this remarkable article from Jeff Gerth, longtime New York Times reporter, over the Columbia Journalism Review, and we're doing part one of the press versus the president. And, again, one of the reasons it's remarkable to me is I'm not used to anybody in the mainstream media being concerned that most of the rest of the mainstream media are called the enemy of the people, and rightly so, because they're lying to such a ridiculous extreme. Again, the the title of today's episode, the theme of today's show, is what the media did to us, all of us. And so I have to share this with you. Now, we left off with the lawyer who hired Fusion GPS, Mark Elias, testifying in 2022 that he would brief Jake Sullivan and other Clinton campaign officials about Fusion GPS's findings, having been updated himself through regular meetings with Simpson and Fritch, with Elias as the intermediary, the Fusion GPS founders, could write in 2019 that no one in the company has ever met or spoken to Hillary Clinton. They didn't have to. She had intermediaries. In mid-August, after the New York Times published an investigation into the Ukrainian business dealings of Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign manager, 
since May of 2016, the longtime Republican Manafort resigned. His ties to business interests and a pro-Russian political party in Ukraine were well known, but the New York Times obtained what they called a secret ledger purporting to show cash payments of almost $13 million to Paul Manafort. Manafort denied he dealt in cash and explained that the payments covered expenses for his whole team, but he nevertheless resigned from his post as campaign chairman of the Trump campaign. In a memoir in 2022, Manafort wrote that the amounts of money in the ledger were in the range of what I had been paid, but the cash angle was clearly wrong. Manafort's finances and his work for Ukraine would eventually lead to his being convicted of multiple crimes, jailed, and then pardoned by Trump. The Ukraine-related cases were based on banking records and wire transfers as opposed to cash. The New York Times won a Pulitzer Prize for the work on Manafort. In late August 2016, Nevada Democrat Harry Reid majority leader then of the U.S. Senate, wrote a letter to FBI Director James Comey hoping to prod the agency into probing Trump's Russia ties and Russian election influence efforts. While not naming the Trump aide, Reid's letter said questions have been raised about a volunteer foreign policy advisor who had business ties in Russia, including their recent meetings with high-ranking sanctioned individuals in Russia. That fit the description of a recent, unsubstantiated, Fusion GPS Christopher Steele dossier report about Carter Page, a Trump volunteer with his own business dealings in Russia and previous contacts with Russian officials. Harry Reid, who died in 2021, never publicly disclosed how he knew about that information, but in an interview For the HBO documentary, Agents of Chaos, a few years before his death, he said that he first heard about the dossier from two unidentified, quote, men that worked in the press for a long time, unquote, according to a transcript of the interview. By the time Reed wrote the letter, some reporters, aware of the dossier's allegations about Carter Page, had pursued them, but no one had published the details. Hamburger of the Washington Post told Simpson the Carter Page allegations were found to be BS and impossible by the Washington Post's Moscow correspondent, according to court records. But not everyone held back. In late September, Michael Isakoff, chief investigative correspondent at Yahoo News, published a story about the allegation, confirmed that Harry Reid was referring to Carter Page and added a new detail that he says was key. And that is, a senior law enforcement source said the Carter Page matters were being looked at. That was accurate. The FBI was already investigating Christopher Steele's dossier, but it would later emerge that the FBI clandestinely surveilled Carter Page and those he communicated with on the campaign based on seriously flawed applications to the FISA court, the secret surveillance court. 
the applications not only relied heavily on the unsubstantiated dossier, but they left out exculpatory evidence, including Carter Page's previous cooperation with the CIA and more recent statements he made to an undercover FBI informant, according to a subsequent Justice Department inquiry. Carter Page would quickly deny the allegations to other reporters and write a letter to FBI Director James Comey denouncing the, quote, completely false media reports, unquote, and mentioning his decades of having interacted with the FBI and CIA. But after the piece in Yahoo by Michael Isikoff, he stepped down from his volunteer position with the Trump campaign. The Hillary Clinton campaign put out a statement on Twitter linking to what it called the, quote, bombshell report, unquote, on Yahoo, but did not disclose that the campaign secretly paid the researchers who pitched it to Michael Isikoff at Yahoo. In essence, the campaign was boosting through the press a storyline it had itself engineered. Isikoff says he first learned about the Page allegations when he met that September 2016 with Christopher Steele in Washington, a meeting arranged by Fusion GPS. After being the first reporter to go public with Christopher Steele's claims, Michael Isikoff of Yahoo by late 2018, began publicly casting doubt about their accuracy, earning praise from Trump, and had a falling out with Glenn Simpson, his former friend. In a 2022 interview, Isikoff pointed to his earlier description of the dossier as third-hand stuff and added that, quote, in retrospect, it never should have been given the credence it was, unquote. Well, you know, if I may digress from the article here for just a second, It's one thing to say in the passive voice, it never should have been given the credence. But when you're the reporter that broke the story, wouldn't it be more appropriate to say, I never should have given it the credence I did? I'm just saying. But I digress. The 2016 dossier's conspiracy claim was never corroborated by the media. And the supposed plot involving the Russian bank, Alpha Bank, Didn't fare much better. Still, that fall, Fritch made frantic efforts to persuade reporters from several outlets, including Isikoff, to publish the bank story. Their best hope appeared to be the New York Times. The Clinton campaign, in mid-September 2016, was eagerly anticipating a, quote, bombshell, unquote, story on Trump Russia from the New York Times. A private September 18th memo by Sidney Blumenthal, longtime close Clinton confidant, headlined the idea that it was causing a Trump freakout. His memo circulated among top campaign aides, the two Fusion GPS leaders, Mark Elias and Michael Sussman, then a partner in the same law firm as Elias. The memo was made public in 2022. Two hours after Michael Sussman received the memo, he texted the private phone number of James Baker, then general counsel of the FBI, seeking a meeting on a sensitive matter. They met the next afternoon, where Sussman briefed him about the back-channel allegations. Sussman upped the ante, 
with James Baker by pointing out that the media, soon understood to be the New York Times, was about to publish something about the supposed secret Russian communication link. Michael Sussman later testified to Congress that he gave the story to New York Times reporter Eric Lichtblau. The reporter and the lawyer has started communicating at the beginning of September, according to emails filed in court. Sussman was acquitted in 2022 of a charge that he had lied to James Baker, chief counsel of the FBI, about who he was representing when he delivered the Alpha Bank allegations. Now, the New York Times reporter, Eric Lichtblau, later paired up with Stephen Lee Myers, a former Moscow hand for the New York Times, whereas Myers, in an interview, said he saw some red flags in the Alpha Bank tip. Lichtblau, he added, believed in the Alpha Bank thing more than I did. A few days after Michael Sussman's meeting with Baker, Myers and Lichtblau met with the FBI, where officials, including Baker, asked them to hold off on publishing anything until the Bureau could further investigate the allegation, according to the journalists and public records. The New York Times agreed, and the Bureau quickly concluded there was nothing there, according to James Baker's testimony and other evidence at Michael Sussman's trial. Once the New York Times learned of the dead end, the story went into remission, as Dean Baquette told the reporters, you don't have it yet according to Myers and other current and former New York Times journalists. In early October 2016, the intelligence community put out a brief statement concluding that Russia had been behind the recent hacks, a pattern of behavior they said was not new to Moscow. But the report continued, it would be extremely difficult, even for a nation-state, to alter voter ballots or election data. The report was quickly lost in a frenzied news cycle. First, the Washington Post published a tape recording of Trump bragging in vulgar terms about some of his sexual activities. Then, WikiLeaks published the first of a weeks-long series of leaked emails from the email account of John Podesta, Clinton's campaign chairman, causing more problems for her campaign. Two weeks later, the New York Times would report that a private security group had concluded that the GRU, a Russian intelligence agency, was behind the Podesta hack. The Justice Department in 2018 charged 12 GRU officials for the Podesta and DNC hacks, but the charges have never been litigated. As the election entered its final weeks in 2016, New York Times reporter Eric Lichtblau thought there was a bigger story beyond the FBI rejection of the Alpha Bank theory. The Bureau, the New York Times had learned, was conducting a broader counterintelligence investigation into possible Russian ties to Trump aides. In mid-October 2016, Two New York Times reporters, Adam Goldman and Matt Apuzzo, were in California where they met with a top federal official who cautioned them about the larger FBI inquiry, according to current and former New York Times reporters. FBI records show that then-Deputy Director Andrew McCabe 
met the two reporters at the Broken Yoke Cafe in San Diego on October 16, 2016, during a conference there. I exchanged emails with McCabe in September, but after I sent him a detailed list of questions, he didn't respond. After New York Times editor Dean Baquette heard the feedback from California, the story stayed on hold, according to current and former New York Times journalists. Finally, at the end of October, the languishing story was published. The headline read, Investigating Donald Trump, FBI sees no clear link to Russia. The top of the piece dealt with the FBI's doubts about the Alpha Bank allegation and waited until the 10th paragraph to disclose the broader inquiry. It also noted the FBI believed the hacking operation, quote, was aimed at disrupting the presidential election rather than electing Mr. Trump, unquote. The piece mentioned a letter to FBI Director James Comey the day before from Senator Harry Reid, who again was trying to spur the FBI to look into what he believed was, quote, explosive information, unquote. The letter, according to Myers, was an impetus for publishing the story. Another factor, New York Times journalists said, was a publication earlier that day of a piece about the Alpha Trump allegation in Slate.com, which wrote less critically about the supposed back channel at length, though the title framed it as a question. That piece's author, Franklin Fowler, worked closely with Fusion GPS, forwarding drafts of his stories to the private investigative firm prior to their publication according to court records. Franklin Fowler, now at The Atlantic, so they failed and they get promoted upward, right? Franklin Fowler, now at The Atlantic, declined to respond to an email seeking comment. Oh, I'm shocked. I'm shocked, I tell you. Fusion GPS's co-founders would later call the New York Times story a journalistic travesty. Dean Baquette, April 2018, told Eric Wimple, the Washington Post's media critic, that the story was not inaccurate based on what we knew at the time, but he added the headline was off. A few weeks after Eric Wimple's column, the New York Times explained to its readers what Dean Baquette meant. In a piece about the FBI inquiry, the reporters said the headline that October night gave an air of finality to an investigation that was just beginning and that the story significantly played down the case because unnamed law enforcement officials in 2016 had cautioned against drawing any conclusions. That Halloween night, 2016, the Clinton campaign anticipating the imminent publication of the Alpha Bank story was prepared to light it up Rich emailed a reporter that morning. Another story, Fusion GPS, helped arrange, appeared that day, too, in the left-leaning magazine Mother Jones. It said a veteran spy had provided the FBI information about an alleged five-year Russian operation to cultivate and coordinate with Donald Trump. That came from Christopher Steele's dossier. Within hours the FBI contacted Christopher Steele, who confirmed he had been a source for the Mother Jones article. After working with the Bureau for several months as a confidential informant on the Russia inquiry, he was then terminated by the FBI, according to Bureau documents. Before the election, 
The author of the article in Mother Jones, David Korn, provided a copy of the dossier to James Baker, FBI general counsel, a longtime acquaintance of David Korn. In an interview, Korn said, it was a standard journalistic ploy to try and get information out of them because I knew they had the dossier, but he added it didn't work. At 8.36 p.m., October 31st, 2016, the campaign lit up as Fritz promised on Twitter. Hillary tweeted out a statement by Jake Sullivan about, quote, Trump's secret line of communication to Russia, unquote. Her aide only cited the Slate.com story on Alpha Bank. Hillary had also been aware of the New York Times unpublished story. According to an account in Merchants of Truth, a 2019 book about the news media by Jill Abramson, a former executive editor of the New York Times, Hillary hoped it would push the Russia story onto the front burner of the election, but was crestfallen when an aide showed her the headline. The story was a closely guarded secret, but campaign operatives had been pushing it with New York Times reporters and were aware of some internal deliberations, according to the book, by Fusion GPS's founders. Moreover, the candidate herself was aware of efforts to push the Trump-Russia story to the media, according to court testimony. At the FBI, agents who debunked the Alpha Bank allegations appreciated the New York Times report. One agent messaged another, made us look on top of our game, according to court records. After the election that ushered Trump into office, the New York Times began to undertake some soul-searching about its Trump-Russia coverage. The intelligence community did its own assessment on Russia, including a new take by the FBI. Eric Lichtblau left the New York Times in 2017 but continued to believe in the Alpha Bank story. He wrote a piece for Time magazine in 2019 about the supposed secret channel even after the FBI and other investigators had debunked it. In December 2016, President Obama secretly ordered a quick assessment by the intelligence community of Russia's involvement in the election. Instead of the usual group of 17 agencies, however, it was coordinated by the Director of National Intelligence and produced by the National Security Agency, which gathers electronic intercepts, the CIA, and the FBI. In mid-December, the Washington Post reported that the FBI now backed the CIA view that Russia aimed to help Trump win the election compared with a broader set of motivations, as the New York Times had reported on October 31st. Peter Strzok, the FBI official running the probe, texted a colleague about the unprecedented wave of leaks. He wrote, quote, our sisters have been leaking like mad, unquote, referring to intelligence agencies like the CIA. Strzok now believes the leaks originated elsewhere. He told me in a 2022 interview, I now believe that it is more likely they came not from the CIA, but from senior levels of the U.S. government or Congress. Trump, unaware of the coming tornado, including the most salacious contents of the dossier, set out to form a government and make peace with the press. Like I told you, 
Rush Limbaugh said that's what he wanted to do, remember? But I digress. He made the rounds of news organizations meeting with broadcast anchors, editors at Condé Nast, magazines, and the New York Times. Trump's longest sit-down after the election was with the New York Times, including the then-publisher, editors, and reporters. For 75 minutes, Trump's love-hate relationship with his hometown newspaper was on display. At the end, he called the New York Times a world jewel. He added, I hope we can get along. And that, friends, is part one from the Columbia Journalism Review of Jeff Girth's article, The Press Versus the President. Now, you never know what's going to happen in this old world of ours. You never know what kind of news is going to break. But what I would like to do on the next episode of the Doc Washburn Show is share with you Chapter 2 of The Press versus the President, The Origins of Fake News, from Jeff Girth at the Columbia Journalism Review. It's just amazing. Again, not that the press, not that the mainstream media was pushing fake news like crazy, but that an organization like the Columbia Journalism Review and a reporter like Jeff Girth are putting it all out there. It's just amazing. All right, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by Red River Auto. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice online the way you like it and deliver it to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. So today's tweet of the day is actually a thread of tweets, an update from Project Veritas on the Pfizer executive. They did the undercover video on recently who admitted that Pfizer was monkeying around with uh, viruses to try to make more vaccines, which would be very lucrative for them financially. The same executive that freaked out when O'Keefe of the Project Veritas organization, James O'Keefe, the founder, showed up and started asking him about the undercover video. It got violent. I mean, this guy's name was scrubbed from anything having anything to do with Pfizer, like they, you know, were implying that, hey, we don't know who that is. Update, Project Veritas has now confirmed six scientific papers written by Dr. Jordan Walker. Number one, Boston Consulting Group, the near-term outlook for COVID-19 therapeutic treatments. Number two, from the National Institutes of Health, does proximity of positive prostate biopsy core to capsular margin help predict 
side-specific extracapsular extension at prostatectomy. No idea. Number three, clinical risk factors associated with urethral atrophy, or atrophy as the case may be. Number four, formalin disinfection of prostate biopsy needles may reduce post-biopsy infectious complications. Number five, reducing infectious complications following transrectal ultrasound guided prostate biopsy, a systematic review. Number six, robot-assisted versus open, simple prostatectomy for benign prostatic hyperplasia in large glands, a propensity score-matched comparison of perioperative and short-term outcomes. So this guy, you know, he's an actual MD. He's the real person who freaked out when James O'Keefe confronted him with the undercover video because he knew all of a sudden, oh, well, my life is over. There's way too much money involved, and he jeopardized billions of So that's our Tweet of the Day, brought to you by the great folks at Red River Auto. Thanks, Mitch. We appreciate you. You've been listening to Episode 335 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a Terribly Messy production, portions of today's show, will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. And that's the way it is. Tuesday, January 31st, 2023.